Welcome to the Oakcrest podcast channel. Oakcrest School in Vienna, Virginia challenges girls in grades 6 to 12 to develop their intellect, character, faith, and leadership potential to thrive in college and throughout their lives. On today's podcast, psychologist and family physician Dr. Leonard Sachs discusses best parenting practices for raising daughters in the 21st century, especially with regards to social media and phone use. So we're in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, let's start by looking at some data. Uh, CDC has been monitoring depression among adults in the United States for many years. Uh, for many years now, uh, twice a year, uh, roughly every six months, they will survey roughly 70,000 adults across the United States with appropriate weighting for region, race, ethnicity, et cetera, to get a uh, cross-section of what's going on nationwide. But early this year, in April of this year, they recognized, hey, we're in a pandemic. Every six months, no, 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 that's not going to cut it. Let's do it every week. And they began surveying Americans every uh, week to two weeks. Um, adults 18 to over 80 years of age. And they also published alongside these data a baseline. So we all have something to compare to. Same questions posed to the adults. In April of last year, a year and a half ago, 6.5% of American adults reported significant impairment due to symptoms of depressive disorder. 6.5% is our baseline. Uh, most recent uh, round that has been published uh, is about three weeks ago. That has precisely quadrupled from 6.5% of adults uh, we're now up to 26% of adults reporting significant impairment due to symptoms of depressive disorder. But they also allow you to break down the results by age group. And again, all these numbers are in your handout with links to the CDC source. Uh, so among the youngest adults, you have the highest rate, 39% of young adults 18 to 29 years of age reporting symptoms of depression. But with each decade after that, it drops. So uh, at 30 to 39, it's 30%, then 26%, then 23%, then 20%. And for the oldest group, over 80 years of age, 13%. So the message from these data seem to be that depression has risen uh, over the course of the pandemic. And that among adults, the younger you are, the greater the risk that you are experiencing depression. What about children? What about teens? Can we simply extrapolate? If it was 39% among young adults, is it even higher among teenagers? The answer is no, it is not. I'll be mentioning Jean Twenge's name many times this evening. In my judgment, she is our nation's leading scholar on trends in anxiety and depression among children and teens. She's been studying these issues for many years and she is really uh, the dean of scholars when it comes to carefully uh, reviewing with regard to race, ethnicity, household income, region of the country, language spoken at home, et cetera, the rates of anxiety and depression. And she led a group of scholars who did a survey of 1,523 middle school and high school students beginning in May and going through July, but most of the surveys were between June 8th and July 3rd of this year. And they just published their results a few weeks ago. And 
they used exactly the same questions that they've used for a previous survey in 2018, and which are also basically exactly the same questions used by the CDC and their question. So we can compare apples to apples. And in the same questions, the CDC found a rate of 39% among adults 18 to 29 years of age. Gene 20 and her colleagues find that just 20% middle school and high school kids are reporting symptoms of depression. That's a high number, but it's actually lower than the number two years ago from the same age group. It's dropped. Not hugely, but it's down. It's not up, it's down. And they also find a bifurcation in their results. Some teens report feeling worse since the pandemic began, but many teens report feeling better. How could that be? And what lessons can you take home? I promise you that if you stick with it for the next 90 minutes, I will answer those questions. And you will be able to take home some very concrete zero cost strategies that you can deploy immediately based on this research and other research like it, which we'll look at, that will improve the odds for your daughter or for your son. But I want to put this in a whole context. And that's why it's going to take 90 minutes. For these recommendations to make sense, you need to understand the big picture what's happened with American children and teens. So let's go back more than 50 years. Let's go back to the 1960s, when James Coleman, who was then a sociologist at Johns Hopkins, went across the United States. And he and his colleagues conducted structured interviews with high school kids. One of the questions they always asked was, if all your friends wanted you to join a particular club, but one of your parents did not approve, would you still join? And in that era, more than 50 years ago, the great majority of American high school kids said, no, they would not join. Even if all their friends wanted them to join, they wouldn't join the club if one of their parents did not approve. In that era, kids cared what their parents thought more than they cared what all their peers thought. Between 2011 and 2019, I posed an updated version of Dr. Coleman's question to students I met with across the United States. My updated version of Dr. Coleman's question, I would ask high school kids, if all your friends wanted you to sign up for a particular social media site, would you consult your parents first? And the most common answer I got from uh, high school kids wasn't yes, it wasn't no, it was laughter. They would burst out laughing. Uh, as one girl said to me, this was last year, she said, my parents would probably think TikTok is some kind of alarm clock, you know, why would I ask them? Now, these kids may say they love their parents, and maybe they do, but they care more about what their peers think than about what their parents think. And that's very common. That's not just my experience. Many scholars, many scholars in the United States have documented that many American kids now find their primary attachment not to their parents, to their peers. Or another way of saying that, many American high school kids now care more what their same age peers think than they do what their parents think. And that's important because most cultures have been characterized by strong attachment across generations. 
And kids have been looking to the grown-ups for guidance and hearing what the grown-ups think. But the scholars are telling us that now the primary attachment of many American children and teens is to the kids their own age. And this really matters because good parents offer unconditional attachment, but peers don't. Good parents nurture, but peers generally can't. Good parents sacrifice for their kids without expecting anything in return. But kids rarely do that for other kids their own age. So that's my daughter, Sarah. Uh, suppose she were to say to me, I hate you. I'm never going to talk to you ever again as long as I've been. Well, her mother and I would discuss and decide what privileges she would lose and for how long as a result of that outburst. But nothing fundamental would change. She would not lose her place in our house. We would not stop loving her. There's nothing that uh, she could do or say that would cause us to stop loving her. And she knows that. Uh, she knows that. And we are her primary attachment. So she can relax because that foundation will not change, no matter what. But suppose she says those same words to a friend at school. I hate you. I never talk to you ever again. Well, that friendship is over, or it is at least badly damaged. Peer relations, relations with kids your own age, are contingent and ephemeral. They can change overnight. You want to see a typical American teenage girl? Here's how you do it. You take her phone from her without warning. And she will totally freak out. She'll be like, Sonia doesn't know I don't have my phone. What if she texts me and I don't answer? She's going to think I don't like her. She's going to think I'm ignoring her. You can go from being the most popular girl to being the odd girl out in one day, in five minutes, and every girl knows it. So the typical American girl is glued to her phone, checking for a text. So I'm a practicing family doctor. This is my day off. And I'll tell you what I see. I can tell within two minutes, usually within 30 seconds, but always within two minutes, what kind of kid I'm dealing with here? Is this kid's primary attachment to their parents or to their parents? That wasn't true a year ago. But eye contact, they're articulate. They may be sick, but they're fine. They're outgoing, they're, they're, they're happy. Yeah, they have a sore throat or whatever, but they're fine. Other kids are sullen, withdrawn, resentful. Those kids' primary attachment is to their same age peers, and the pandemic has really screwed up their life. All the things they like to do involve hanging out with their friends, and they're not allowed to do that, or it's restricted. They just can't do those things. So they like to sit in their bedroom on a screen with their friends, but if you limit that, then they get upset. They feel like the world is unfair. They're angry, and it's very difficult to engage these kids. They're happy when they're online with their peers, otherwise they're not. I think we do have enough evidence based on research published over the past seven months to make these recommendations. Prioritize the family. All this is in your hand. Prioritize the family. Be confident in prioritizing family time over time spent with same-age peers. 
And time with family is safer than face-to-face -face time with other households. Limit how much time your kid is spending on social media. I'll have a lot more to say about that in just a minute. We're going to look at the evidence and some more substance to that recommendation. Communicate what's on your mind. Open those channels. And maybe your daughter has been prioritizing same-age peers. It's not too late to recreate, restore those lines of communication. I will say what your daughter said. Yes. We've been asked if we speak the microphone for interfering. The microphone. Yeah. yeah, it's interfering with the Zoom. Thank you. Okay, all right. Uh, communicate, I will always be here for so I mentioned social media a moment ago and the importance of limiting social media. I think it's worth one slide to recall how quickly this has happened. According to Nielsen, half of American girls at age 12, more than half, are now on Instagram. Instagram is now a big part of the lived experience of American teen girls, and it's 10 years old. It's barely 10 years old. This has all happened very quickly. To understand why that matters and why that matters for girls more than it matters for boys, I want you to imagine a girl living in ancient times. By ancient times, I mean the year 2000, <laughs> years ago. It's the evening she's writing in her diary, by which I mean she's writing with a pen in a bound volume of blank pages. She's writing about who she likes, who she doesn't like, the kind of girl she most admires, the kind of woman she hopes to become. She might write five pages in an evening. She's not going to show that to anybody. If she has a younger brother, she'll keep it under lock and key. But she's doing some very important work. She's figuring out, who am I? Who do I want to be? What do I really want? That's important work. When I meet with high school kids or middle school kids, I'll ask them, who here is on Snapchat? Most of the hands go up. Who's on Instagram? Most of the hands go up. Who's on TikTok? All the hands go up. Uh, who's on Facebook? A few hands go up. Um, who has a diary? Very few hands. In a room of 300 kids, maybe four hands. Very few. And I ask them why. They said, there's not enough time. We're busy. We got school, we got homework, we got activities. And if we got to choose between Instagram and diary, we're going to do Instagram because other people are watching. And then I'll say, oh, well, what's the difference? What's the difference between posting on Instagram and writing in a diary? I want to call on students who have their hands raised. Girl raises her hand. I call on her. She says, Instagram's public. Diary's private. Bingo. That's right. Instagram is public. When scholars look at how girls are using Instagram, they don't find anyone posting five pages about what I really want out of life. I mean, suppose you could post such a thing, but nobody does. They're posting photos. And this is true of girls and this is true of boys. But it turns out that girls and boys use social media differently. So a boy and a girl both go to a football game and they both take pictures at the football game. But the girl is taking, uh, excuse me, the boy, the boy is taking a picture of the game or of the pretty cheerleader at the game. The girl is turning the phone on herself and she's taking 100 selfies at the game. And then that evening, she's going through those 100 selfies and she's finding two or three where she's laughing and the kids around her are laughing. And that's what she's posting on her Instagram. Here I am at the game. We had a great time. 
So girls and boys post different photos. The boys are posting photos of something out there. The girls are posting photos of themselves. And girls are posting five times as many photos as the boys are. So it's like Mike Stefano have documented. The difference between about figuring out what you want out of life, what's important to you. Instagram, as used by American teens, is a performance. Now, there's nothing wrong with a performance. A performance is a show that you put on to entertain or amuse or impress other people. I don't see anything wrong with that. As long as you understand that the performance has to come to an end and you take off your mask and resume your real life. My concern, talking to American girls, listening to American is that many of them are trapped in what I've come to call the cyber bubble of 24 seven texting and social media. And the performance never ends. The mask never comes off and it is exhausting and it is draining. These girls are hyper-connected to other girls their own age, but they are disconnected from themselves, disconnected from themselves. So a young woman named Clara Dollar wrote a uh, essay for the New York Times out of my so-called Instagram life. The link is in your handout. And she illustrates precisely the point I'm making here. So I want to quote from her essay for just a moment. She talks about how she created a brand, wearing a black leather jacket, only eats ice cream out of mugs, flips her hair to the right. The caricature of me that I had created and meticulously cultivated, the me I broadcast to the world on Instagram, the witty, creative me, always detached, never needy. Once you master what is essentially an onstage performance of yourself, it can be hard to break character. There's a time when I allowed myself to be more than what I could fit onto a two by four inch screen. I've scrubbed that variety away to emerge as one consistently cool girl. The result, heartache. I would lie on the couch and clutch my stomach. No one knew it was there. Her brand was funny, care carefree, and unromantic. And another girl said, yeah, I love your Instagram feed so much. It's so funny. It's so great. I wish I could do that. It's so excellent. And she wanted to say to this girl, I'm overwhelmed by the desire to tell her I am fake. Clinging to continuity has made my skin crawl and itch as if I super glued a mask over my face. I thought every day about peeling back that mask, but I couldn't. I built her without blueprints, not knowing that she would become a wall with no doors. So that's an anecdote. That's a Compelling anecdote, but it's an anecdote. What, what does the data show? Well, the, we now have longitudinal cohort studies where researchers follow a particular cohort of kids, teens, and they find that more time a teen spends on social media, the more likely that teen is to become depressed. So here's one of these studies. Oops, back one. All right. So this is a longitudinal cohort study on the x-axis. Uh, these are all kids on Instagram. How much time is this kid spending on Instagram looking at other kids' Instagram or looking to see how many likes they got on their own Instagram? And the risk of becoming depressed over time. This is a longitudinal cohort study, not 
a cross-sectional analysis, a longitudinal cohort study following teens over more than a year's time. You find the more invested they are in Instagram, the more likely they are to become depressed. And this is true for boys, but it's much more true for girls. It's a steeper uh, line. Slope is greater for girls than it is for boys. And this is a robust finding, meaning that multiple researchers looking at different cohorts have found the same result. The more time a girl spends on social media, the more likely she is to become anxious and or depressed. It's a big effect for girls. It is a much smaller effect for boys. Why? I've spoken to some of the researchers and very few of them were able to answer why. They were very interested when I told them I thought I could. One of the studies I'll share with them is a study by Carol Dweck at Stanford. Carol Dweck and her colleagues have found that girls are very ready to believe that other girls are having more fun than they are, that other girls' lives are more interesting than their own life is. This turns out to be not at all true for boys. Turns out that boys greatly overestimate how interesting their own life is to other people. <laughs> and girls use social media differently than boys do. So a boy and a girl both get sick. They both throw up. The boy posts a photo of his own vomit on his Instagram. Girls never do that. Uh, Vanessa has a puppy. It's a really cute puppy, but the puppy got loose, ran out in the street, got run over by a truck. She did not. Might. It's not unusual for a boy to post a photo of the mangled corpse of his dead dog on his Instagram. Girls are much, much, much less likely to do that. Uh, so now imagine a girl, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years of age, looking at all the other girls' Instagram. There's Emily at the football game. She's having a great time. There's Vanessa with her new puppy. Isn't it cute? There's Madison at the party having a blast. I'm just sitting there not doing anything. My life sucks. The more time a girl depressed and you now understand three mechanisms by that difference between girls and boys first of all girls are more invested in their posts than boys are if you don't like jake's photo of the pretty cheerleader he doesn't care but if you don't like emily's photo of emily she's going to take that more personally Gr girls post mostly the fun stuff the happy stuff boys post a much wider range of their lived experience the dead dog the vomit <laughs> This boy looking at Brett's dead dog or Jake's vomit is unlikely to want to be Brett or Jake. But <laughs> girls are just posting the fun stuff. And so they don't realize uh, that the girls are not always having a lot of fun. And as I said earlier, boys greatly overestimate how interesting their own life is to others. So boys are to some degree on average protected from the toxic effects of social media. Girls are more vulnerable. Boys are more vulnerable to the addictive properties of video games, but that's a different talk. We're not going to get to that tonight. Now, if there were a grown-up in the room, incidentally, the brain research tells us girls reach full maturity and brain development by about 22 years of age, boys not until 30 years of age. So that explains a lot, if you think about it. <laughs> uh, when I talk about a grown-up, I'm referring to a woman over 22, a man over 30. If there were a grown-up in the room, the grown-up could explain, look, everyone's life is a mixture of happy and sad, of success and disappointment. And that's true of those girls, 
just as it's true for you. But there is no grown up in the room. When American girls are on Instagram, they are almost always on Instagram without a grown up in the room. Second Corinthians 6, 10. We have reason to be sorrowful, yet we are always rejoicing. Romans chapter 8, this world is subject to frustration. But we're commanded to rejoice continually. Well, how are you supposed to rejoice continually if the world is condemned to frustration? And if we have reason to be sorrowful, why are we always rejoicing? What, how can you do that? Life is a mix of happy and sad, of success and disappointment. For most people who have ever lived, including today, more sadness than happiness, more disappointment than success. Life is also full of boredom, and then you die. That's the human experience. In a hundred years, every one of us will be dead. Our dreams will, in many cases, in most cases, not have come true. That's not a new insight. Ecclesiastes 9-11, the race is not to the sweat, but time and chance happens to them all. So how are you supposed to rejoice continually? Given that life is full of disappointment, sadness, frustration, and it ends in death. How are you supposed to rejoice continually? How do you choose to live joyfully? How did Paul manage it? He wrote this in prison, some of these lines. How do you do it? That's the first question, in my judgment, as a clinician, as a psychologist, and a family doctor. That's the first question on the road to becoming a mature adult. I will be frustrated. I will be disappointed. My dreams may not come true. How do I choose to live joyfully? How you answer that question is the first question on the road to mature adulthood. And I've met some adults who haven't answered it, but you must answer it. If you're going to be, you're going to be able to rejoice continually. This girl sitting in her bedroom looking at all the other girls' Instagrams, she has not even taken the first step toward answering that question. Because she still thinks all the other girls are having a great time because that's all she sees on Instagram. She thinks she's the only one who's bored, frustrated, disappointed. So what do you do about it? What do you do about it as a parent? Well, I think the first step is to recognize that most 14-year-olds are not masters of time management. In one study, they asked this girl, how long were you on Instagram last night? She said, mm, 40 minutes. It was actually more than two hours. But I don't think she was lying. I think she lost track of time. She was enjoying herself. She was having a good time. This is where you must step in and inculcate good habits of time management. Uh, you cannot reasonably sit looking over your teen's shoulder. It's not practical. You've got your own life. You need to install parental, excuse me, parental monitoring software. And in your handout, I devote a full page to listing the apps that I recommend 
and pros and cons of the various apps, but you've got to install one of them. And the first thing they will do is report to you how much time your daughter is spending on social media. I am not advocating a prohibition on social media. The evidence does not support that. But three hours a night, two hours a night is too much. The app will show you how much time your daughter is spending on each app. And then you explain to your daughter, look, my parents insisted on knowing where I was at all times. I have to know where you're at all times. Except now it's not on there. It's online. I will know everything you do online because that's my job as your parent. And I'm going to limit how much time you spend on social media. And these apps work. Uh, they make it very easy to say, okay, no more than 40 minutes a day on Instagram. And when, once they reach 40 minutes, they're logged out. 24 hours. I find some parents who are skeptical and they're like, oh, come on, my daughter's just going to Google, how do I get around parental controls on that nanny? Well, I have done quite a few events across Silicon Valley. I've actually spoken to some people who work for NetNanny and they told me that NetNanny has full-time employees whose job is to Google the phrase, how do I get around parental controls on NetNanny? <laughs> and every possible variation on that. And if they find that some kid has found a hole, they patch it, usually within hours, and your app will update. These apps do work. And you should install them. You should install one of them. Jean Twenge, again, did a huge study. Uh, in which she uh, looked at data from over 200,000 adolescents and the risk of becoming anxious or depressed over time. And she found that the curve, the, the, the previous study I mentioned, which was a small, much smaller cohort, did a linear analysis, but she had a much larger cohort and she did a curvy linear analysis to look for relations that were not strictly linear. And she found that from about zero to 40 minutes a day of use, the curve is pretty flat. There's an inflection point at 40 minutes. And 40 minutes above, beyond 40 minutes a day, it starts going up. One hour is worth in 40 minutes, two hours much worse than one hour, three hours much worse than two hours. Why? Well, I think we now have the answer to that as well. Why an inflection point at, specifically at 40 minutes? So the researchers find that kids who are on social media 10, 20, 30 minutes a day, they're using social media to facilitate their social life. Like, okay, where, where are we getting together? When? Uh, updates. Jake and Emily just broke up. Uh, but kids who are on social media more than 40 minutes they're producing, they're creating videos. Now I've got another presentation for parents of girls and boys. And we talk a lot about the difference between social media and video games. So Julie Jargon, who's writes for the Wall Street Journal had what I thought was a very silly article a few weeks back where she said, hey, parents of daughters, get your daughters to play video games instead. Because what we're finding during the pandemic is the boys who are spending hours a day playing video games, they're very happy. And the girls who are spending hours a day on Instagram, they're miserable. So she said, get your kid to play video games. Why is it the case 
that boys who spend hours a day playing video games are happy. Video games are meticulously constructed to reward effort. First time I played Fortnite, I got killed in about 10 seconds. <laughs> but my nephews taught me. And you put some time in with some gifted instructors, and before long, you're doing pretty well. And eventually, I have a screenshot of me, Victor, number one, Battle Royale Fortnite. If you put in time and effort, you will conquer. And all the most popular video games, Call of Duty, Grand Theft Auto, RDR2, Minecraft, they're all like that. If you put in time and effort, you will eventually be master of the universe. Guaranteed. Not true in social media. And I've heard from so many girls who have put hours upon hours and spent their own money getting a ring light and a microphone and a backdrop to make the perfect TikTok video. And it's cute and it's funny and it's professional. And after two weeks, they've got 31 views and some nasty comments from people they don't know. And then they look at this other TikTok video, much less professional, much less funny, and they've got 17 million views. Social media does not reward effort. The race is not to the swift, but time and chance happens to them all. You can put in all the time in the world and come up with nothing on social media. And the Wall Street Journal just had another article about all these people who put in a little effort and they got 20 million views on TikTok. They don't have any articles about the millions of people. And yes, it's millions who posted videos on TikTok and have had less than 100 views. You only hear about the success stories, which are not systematically any better. It's time and chance. You don't want your daughter to get sucked in to that vortex of spending more and more time and money on something that may give her nothing back. That's where the 40 minute inflection point comes from. It's fine for her to talk to her friends. 40 minutes a day is plenty time to talk to her friends. And if she needs more time, she can pick up the phone and call them. No limit on voice. But all the uh, monitoring apps that I recommend will give your daughter a warning. Hey, you got 10 minutes left before you're off Instagram, five minutes left. So she's got time to finish up her business or she can say, hey, can I call you? <coughs> Excuse me. That is not a COVID cough. That is a dry throat cough. Many American girls are going to bed with their phone switched on. And at two in the morning, your daughter's getting text. OMG, Jason and Emily just broke up. This is really big news. We'll have to talk about this. Parents are amazed to find that half the ninth grade class is awake and texting at two in the morning. Look, the rules of good parenting have not changed in 20 years. But 20 years ago, a girl could not accept a phone call at two in the morning because the phone would ring and the parents would not allow it because they knew it's more important for a girl to get a good night's sleep than to be up for an hour in the middle of the night exchanging gossip. That was true 20 years ago and it's just as true today. 
The only thing that has changed is the technology. It's now very easy for your daughter to accept that text because the phone never rang. She has it on vibrate mode and she's not talking, she's texting. Just because it's easy doesn't mean it should happen. This is your job. At nine o'clock at night, the very latest, you switch the device off and you put it in the charger, which from now on will stay in the parents' bedroom. She can have it back tomorrow morning. This has to be your job. It is not reasonable. It is not age appropriate to put this choice of whether to have the phone in the bedroom or not in your daughter's lap. What is your 14-year-old daughter supposed to say tomorrow in school? When her friend says, hey, I texted you last night at midnight. How come you didn't answer? Is your daughter supposed to say, well, researchers at Stanford have found that sleep deprivation is a major risk factor in the etiology of depression. Well, that's ridiculous. Can't expect a teenager to talk that way. You have to allow her to say, hey, my evil parents take my phone every night at nine. They won't have it back till next morning. So during Q&A at another one of these presentations, a father said, you know, Dr. Sachs, I, I hear what you're saying about the importance of good night's sleep and, and, and not doing text messaging at two in the morning. And I totally understand and agree that. He said, but I don't think I need to take my daughter's phone away from her. She, she turns, she puts her phone on, on airplane mode every night. So that way she won't be distracted during the night. And then when she wakes up in the morning, she uses it as her alarm clock. And then she, when she wakes up in the morning, she switches it out of airplane mode. And I said to this father, I said, how do you know that she keeps it in airplane mode? And dad was clearly offended. And he said, Dr. Sachs, you're suggesting my daughter would lie to me. My daughter would never lie to me. I said, sir, I don't know you and I don't know your daughter, but I can tell you based on the research, your daughter is more likely to lie to you than to anyone else because she cares what you think because she doesn't want to disappoint you. There's great wisdom in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, lead us not into temptation. Jesus did not say, make us strong to resist temptation. He did not say that because Jesus knew the human heart. And he knew that if you put temptation before us, we will fall. Don't put that stumbling block before your daughter. No phones in the bedroom. Now, I will warn you, when you get home this evening and you announce to your daughter that you attended a workshop by Dr. Sachs and Dr. <laughs> Sachs recommends that you take her phone from her and she can have it back the next morning, she may not applaud. She may say, but I use it as my alarm clock. Remind her they still make actual alarm clocks. You can take her to the store and she can buy one. And now she may get really upset. She may say, but what if there's an emergency? Remind her that you still have a landline, a house phone in the parent's bedroom. If there's a true emergency, her friend is welcome to call the home phone and you, the parent, will pick up. And you, the parent, will decide whether this emergency warrants waking her up at two in the morning. It probably doesn't. It can probably wait. You have to allow her to say to her friends, my evil parents take my phone every night. No devices in the bedroom. That's not just my recommendation. Those are the official guidelines of the American Academy of Pediatrics. You'll find the link to the full text, the AP guidelines in your handout, which state that there should be no unsupervised use of the internet by a child or teenager under 18. 
no expectation of privacy. Those are the AAP guidelines. Scholars define sexting as sending or receiving an obscene photo. They define obscene as the nipple of the female breast is exposed, male or female genitalia is exposed. Sexting is unusual. But what has become very common is girls sending suggestive photos in a bikini or in lingerie, uh, either sending them via text or posting them on Instagram or sharing them with Snapchat. That's very common. So a researcher at Northwestern asked high school girls, why are you sharing these pictures with boys? And the boys give her two answers. One answer is well, all the other girls are doing it. Uh, I don't want to be the weird one. And the girls don't know how or why to say no. What am I supposed to say? I'm a lady of virtue? I mean, those words don't exist in contemporary English. What I suggest is that the easy answer that actually works in my experience is for the girl to say, hey, my parents have installed an app on my phone. Every photo I take goes immediately to my parents' phone and to their laptop before I even do anything with it. If I do anything inappropriate, they lose, I lose the device indefinitely. That works. That gives them an excuse. So I visited a leading co-ed independent school. 12-year-old girl had a 14-year-old boyfriend. He asked her to send him some photos. Nothing raunchy. He just wanted to see her take off her uh, school uniform blouse and skirt to reveal bra and panties down below. He said that nothing raunchy about that. Uh, she knew, of course, her parents would never allow this, so she went into her bedroom, closed the door, locked the door, and did as he had asked, and sent the photos using Snapchat. Snapchat claims that you can send a photo with, say, a five-second self-destruct, and after the recipient has seen the photo for five seconds, it will vanish, and if they try to save it with a screenshot, you, the sender, will be notified. She believed that claim. Snapchat is lying. They know their claim to be false. They know that there are dozens of free apps out there that allow you to save any photo or video sent by a Snapchat without the sender being notified. And of course, the boy had installed one of these apps and he saved every photo that she sent. School administrators later determined he did not intend for anyone else to see the photos, but he was at a party and he set his phone down grab some chips, and talk to some friends. He had his back turned to his phone. Another boy came over, picked with the phone. The lock screen had not yet engaged. Found the gallery, found these girls' photos, forwarded each of the photos to his own phone, exited the gallery, went back to the home screen, put the phone down exactly where he'd found it. First boy didn't know anything had happened. Second boy then posted all the photos on his own Instagram. Within three days, everyone at the school had seen them. Boys, this girl didn't even know were coming up to her and saying, hey, Emily, how about you put on a striptease for us? She had been invited to a three-day ski vacation. The birthday girl, whose parents were hosting the ski trip, <clears throat> all-girls ski weekend, parents who were paying for the bus to go to the... Uh, mountain, paying for lodging at the resort, paying for lift tickets. The 
birthday girl called up this girl and said, you know, I hate to make this phone call, but my mom is totally freaking out because all the other girls' moms are calling my mom and saying, if you're going to be there, they won't let their daughter go because they now think you're some kind of bad influence. So I have to uninvite you. I'm really sorry. I have to uninvite you. This girl had no psychiatric history, had always done well in school, had lots of friends. She collapsed, refusing to go to school, saying her life was over. The photos would always be out there, which is absolutely true. 20 other boys had picked up the photos and reposted them. Uh, and I'm told they're still out there. Uh, they'll always be out there. Um, she said her life was over, started cutting herself with razor blades, hysterical sobbing. They took her to the child psychiatrist who diagnosed depression, prescribed Lexapro, and began uh, hooked her up with a psychotherapist. That accomplished nothing. So you now have a 12-year-old girl with depression, not responding to medication or psychotherapy, who wants to die. Who's at fault? The girl, her boyfriend, the other boy? No, they're kids. The grown-ups are responsible. Look, with this device, I can take a photo and send a photo. And once I send that photo, I have no control over who sees it or what happens to it. That's a very grown-up functionality. If you're going to put a device like that in the hands of a child or teenager under 18, then you are responsible for what happens. So I wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal making this point. The take-home message of this story is if you're going to give your kid a smartphone, you must install parental monitoring software and explain to your kid, if I see anything inappropriate, you lose the device indefinitely. Social media is embedded in American cult, popular culture and leads kids into American popular culture. By American popular culture, I mean the culture of the most popular hit songs, the most popular videos on YouTube and TikTok, the most followed celebrities on Instagram. And social media is embedded in that fabric. The big hit song this year is WAP. It is an acronym referring to vaginal lubrication. It is a hymn to the mechanics of sexual intercourse. There is no mention of love or relationship. It is entirely about vaginal lubrication. And it has broken every record. It has broken the record for the most streams of a video in one week with 93 million streams in the United States of the video debuted at number one on Billboard's Top 100, stayed in the top three for 10 weeks. The F word, the N word, the A word is repeated 15 times. Bring a bucket and mop for this WAP. I want to gag, I want to choke. I'm a freak, handcuffs, leashes. I'm looking for a beating. This song was uh, ecstatically reviewed from left to right across American mainstream media. The New York Times reviewer was thrilled by the song's praise of female sexual desire. The Wall Street Journal 
praised this song as historic and a sign that women artists are finally making their mark. Teen Vogue, targeting teenage girls, said that women everywhere rejoiced in the glory of the song. Shireen Taylor praised the song's promotion of sexual agency and that tweet got over 110,000 likes on Twitter. When a girl sees that the most popular video in the United States, a record-breaking video, more popular than any video ever made, presents women who describe themselves as looking for a beating, who want a gag, want to choke on a male, on a man's penis. And that video is praised across the board by women writing for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Teen Vogue. What is she learning about what it means to be a woman? So I wrote an article for a online journal called Public Discourse. And if you'd like to read, uh, get the links to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, etc., cetera, uh, you will find them all in my article. Some girls are saying, if that's what it means to be a girl, then maybe I'm not a girl. If the culture is saying that's what girls like to do, maybe I'm a boy. I certainly have no interest in that. There has been a 4,000% increase in the number of American teen girls who say they are boys. For every one girl 10 years ago, there are now 40 such girls. That is a 4,000% increase. What does it mean to be a woman? Every culture of which we have any substantial record has provided constructive answers to that question, including American culture as recently as 40 years ago. But we no longer do. And as a result, we have a lot of girls who are very confused. When they look to the culture, what they find is WAP as the uh, most successful video. It's not just that song, it's the culture. There are four women and only four who have more than 180 million followers on Instagram. They are Ariana Grande, Selena Gomez, Kylie Jenner, and Kim Kardashian. WAP is not exceptional. It is typical of American popular culture. And if you don't know that, you're not in tune with the popular culture of the number one hit songs, the most popular women on Instagram, or Bruno Mars. So Bruno Mars won six Grammys for his record-breaking song, That's What I Like. Lyrics, I got a condo in Manhattan. Baby girl, what's happening? You and your blank invited, so gonna get to clapping, turn around and drop it for a player because that's what I like. There's a screenshot from the video, which is had, if you look at the lower left-hand corner, over 1.4 billion views, 1.4 billion with a B on YouTube. He's addressing a woman he appears not to know. And he offers her lobster, champagne, then diamonds, then a shopping spree in Paris, and finally just offers to hand her his credit card if she will just turn around and drop it for a player because that's what I like. 
Again, sex is a transaction. Again, no mention of love or relationship. Money makes her smile. Not love or courtesy or respect. Money makes her smile. You know, the, the Grammys were weird because Janelle Monet, shown here, uh, got up and gave this little sermon. She said, time's up. I'm here to tell you that time is up for sexual harassment of any kind. Time's up. And she got a standing ovation. And then a few minutes later, Bruno Mars accepted his Grammy for best song for a song celebrating sexual harassment, approaching a woman you don't know, offering her money for sex. Now, I'm not saying that American popular culture is utterly depraved. American popular culture is like a big city. There are some great things going on. There's an art museum, there's a science museum, there's history but there are also high crime neighborhoods and you wouldn't let your daughter wander in a big city without adult guidance. American popular culture has become a toxic culture. It was not always so, but it is now. So this is your job. And again, American parents, many of them are confused. Excuse me, they wanna be their kid's best friend, but a friend is a peer, a friend cannot command. A friend cannot tell you, I will not allow you to pig out on ice cream right before supper. A parent, and only a parent, can say that. A friend cannot say, I'm not allowing you to listen to WAP. Only a parent can say that. Only a parent can say, I'm taking your phone and switching it off and putting it in my bedroom so you can get a good night's sleep. A friend cannot do that. Only a parent can do that. you must install parental monitoring apps on your kids' devices and explain the rules and consequences to your daughter or your son. So you'll find a lot more on that in my book, Girls on the Edge. The first job of the parent is to teach virtue, to teach right and wrong. But teaching virtue requires that you teach from a position of authority. If you're talking to your kid about not cheating on a test and you say, you know, I personally wouldn't cheat because that's just not my thing, you know, but you do you, you know, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> you're not teaching anything. I have been a medical doctor in the United States for more than 34 years. I've witnessed firsthand what I've come to call the collapse of American parenting. As recently as 20 years ago, it was common, it was still common then to find parents who would say, do unto others. That's not a suggestion, that's a command. But over the last 20 years, I've seen that command soften, morph into a question. And the question is often something like, well, you know, how would you feel if someone did that to you? And mom has no idea what to say to her son when her son responds, if someone did that to me, I'd kick him in the nuts and then I'd sit on his face. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. That phrase is often translated something like, teach them diligently to your children. But that is not what the Hebrew says. It would be easy to say that in Hebrew. The verb would be lamed, to teach. 
But the verb here is not lamed. The verb is shanan. Shanan. Shanan means to chisel and stone. A better translation of this phrase would be chisel them on the hearts of your children. Inscribe them on the hearts of your children. You'll find that exegesis of Deuteronomy 6-7 on pages 133-134 of my book, The Collapse of Parenting. On the very next page, I cite a column by a regular columnist for the New York Times who wrote a column about enlightened parenting. According to this New York Times columnist, enlightened parenting means, and I quote, setting your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong. And if in so doing, your child becomes a stranger to you, then so be it, end quote. That may seem enlightened, but it is not enlightened. It is a dereliction of duty. If you set your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong, and they live in the United States and they speak English, what they will find is Bruno Mars, WAP, mainstream pornography, uh, Cardi B, Kim Kardashian, if you set your child free to discover for themselves, you are not doing your job. What is childhood for? I mean, quite literally. A four-year-old horse is a mature adult. The Kentucky Derby is raced with three-year-olds. A four-year-old human has barely begun. And a horse is a bigger animal than a human, so it can't be about physical maturation. The horse accomplishes that in three years. Why is human childhood so long? We don't have to guess. We have scholars like Dr. Melvin Connor at Emory who've devoted their careers to studying and answering this question, comparing humans with other animals. And the answer the scholars give us is that human childhood is as long as it is. Remember, humans are children or adolescents for more years than most animals live. Why? Because it takes many years for parents to teach the child right and wrong. That's a defining characteristic of our species. The New York Times recommendation to set your child loose, not only an abdication of parental responsibility, it's profoundly unhuman. It's not what we are genetically designed to do. We are designed as parents to teach virtue to our kids. Well, that's still a bit vague, isn't it? Teach virtue. Which virtue? I suggest that if you live in the United States, the first virtue you teach must be humility. Humility. And I devote a chapter in my book, The Collapse of Parenting, to explaining why and explaining how. I was at another Catholic school, co-ed Catholic school, and I was they, at the invitation of the school, I was doing a little homily in chapel on Micah chapter 6. The prophet in Micah chapter 6 is asking the Hebrews, what does the Lord require of you? You have to dot all the I's and cross all the T's? And he says, no, that is not what the Lord requires. Here's what the Lord requires. Asot mishpat v'ahavat chesed lechet To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And then I said to the kids, walk humbly. What does that mean? What does humility mean? I said to the kids, raise your hand if you think you know what the word humility means. And the boy shot up his hand and I called on him. And he said, 
Humility, the boy said, humility means trying to convince yourself you're dumb when you know you're smart. I said, actually, that's not humility. That is psychosis. That is a detachment from reality. But I don't blame the kid. How should he know? He has received no instruction. He's at a Catholic, a conservative Catholic school, but he's received no instruction in humility. And the parents don't know. I did a talk for the parents at that school. Uh, incidentally, the definition I offered to the boy is that humility means being as interested in other people as you are in yourself. But I did talk for the parents at that school. And during Q&A, a mom said, I don't want to teach my daughter to be humble. I want her to have high self-esteem. So when that big job comes along, she'll go for it. I don't want her to be humble. And I said to mom, I said, mom, with all due respect, you are confused. You're confusing being humble with being timid. Those are not the same thing. They're very nearly opposites. And the virtue you want for your daughter is not high self-esteem. The virtue you are thinking of is courage. Don't confuse self-esteem with courage. Courage means that you know your shortcomings and you know your weaknesses and your inadequacies and you find the strength to push forward anyhow. You want your daughter to have courage. How do you teach it? Well, again, I devote a chapter to that uh, question, but one very simple answer is chores. You require household chores. And I've done other events in Northern Virginia and Potomac and McLean, and I can tell you that parents push back. And they'll say, oh, my daughter's busy. You've got school and homework. Oh my gosh, the homework and computer coding class and soccer. And you know, her job is school. We can, thank goodness, we can afford to hire someone to, you know, clean and vacuum and do that stuff. Her job is school. The unintended message those parents are sending is that you are too important to be bothered with menial chores like cleaning your room. Don't send that message. Don't send that message. Much more important to teach humility. That's more important than getting an A rather than a B. And that's again, not a guess. I defend that statement. I just made this statement that being humble is more important than getting an A rather than a B on the test. I defend that statement at length in that chapter of the collapse of parenting with longitudinal cohort studies that show that, okay, we follow these kids from 14 years of age till 32 years of age. Getting an A rather than a B does not predict health, wealth, and happiness 18 years down the road, but being humble does. Choose role models carefully. And I would add, choose this school carefully. Kim Kardashian's not a good role model. You might think that's self-evident. That is not self-evident to leading girls' schools within a short drive of where we are sitting. There is another girls' school that charges 40000 a year tuition and bills itself as a leading school because so many of its graduates go on to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford. And this was the assignment which the introductory French teacher gave at that school earlier this year. The girls are expected to know 
that that's Kim Kardashian. They are not told that. And you're supposed to answer who this is. She is blank. She is not blank. She loves blank. She detests blank. She wants something and she can do something. You're supposed to fill in all the blanks. They're essentially presenting Kim Kardashian as a role model and the girls are supposed to write up what Kim Kardashian likes and what she doesn't like. A leading girls school, not far from here. Okay, Kim Kardashian became famous after releasing a sex tape with her boyfriend. She now has a net worth of $780 million. She is indeed rich and famous. She's not a good role model. She does not exemplify humility. If your daughter attends this school, you are fortunate. At this school, they have a quote from St. Teresa up on the wall. I didn't see any quotes from Kim Kardashian <laughs> up on the wall. Do not take this for granted. You live in the Washington area, which is enmeshed in what some scholars have come to call the cult of fame and wealth. All about being rich and famous. You need a school that has a different perspective. And this school has that. You don't want a school that's going to expect your daughter to know about Kim Kardashian and to write about her in French class. I took this photograph in Times Square. Live for now. Don't worry about the sugar, Pepsi slogan. Live for now. If it feels good, do it. Live for now, whatever floats your boat. The real hazard of contemporary American culture right now, by which I mean the culture of Instagram, Cardi B, Bruno Mars, Kim Kardashian. If it feels good, do it. Whatever floats your boat is that it overvalues fame and wealth, devalues humility, prioritizes relations with same age peers over relations with family and disrespects parental authority. So what do you do about it? You must restore the bonds across generations. You must eat supper with your kids. No devices allowed at the dinner table. The benefits are enormous. Frank Algar and his colleagues interviewed more than 10,000 adolescents coast to coast and asked them in the last seven days, how many evening meals have you had at home with at least one parent? And then for each of these 10,000 plus adolescents, they quantified internalizing problems like anxiety or depression, externalizing problems like hitting the wall in anger, positive well-being, pro-social behavior, and life satisfaction, and found a huge effect, not just going from zero to seven, but at almost every step along the way. Let's compare five evening meals a week with six evening meals a week at home with the parent, going from five to six. Going from five to six, we see a significant decrease in internalizing problems, a significant decrease in externalizing problems, a significant increase in positive well-being and in life satisfaction. And yet what has happened? In 1992, scholars asked teenagers, in the last 24 hours, have you had a meal at home with a parent? In 1992, two almost two thirds of teenagers said, yes, I have. I've had a meal at home with a parent in the last 24 hours. In 2005, two-thirds of teenagers said, no, I have not had a meal at home with a parent. 
That's a huge change in a short period of time. The pandemic has created an opportunity for more families to have more family meals together. The after-school activities, many of them have been canceled. More family meals together. Take that opportunity. So I want to tie back to that nationwide survey that I opened with. Again, to, to her surprise, Jean Twenge admitted that she was surprised that the proportion of teens reporting symptoms of depression in response to the same questionnaire that had been asked in 2018 had dropped from 28% of teens in 2018 to just 20% of teens. Whereas teens in 2018 were more likely than young adults to be depressed, teens in 2020 during the pandemic are less likely than young adults to be depressed. That's what scholars call a crossover interaction. Something significant is going on. Why? 54% of teens in the survey said that they now eat dinner with parents more often than they did before the pandemic. And when you break it down that way, you ask them, okay, has your family become closer as a result of the pandemic or has your family not become closer? And I can tell you as a clinician, there are families where many parents have thrown up their hands, incidentally following the advice of the New York Times, which said, hey, let teens do whatever they want. And that's not an exaggeration. If you're on my list, sir, I've sent out those emails sharing the bad advice and criticizing that bad advice. The New York Times said it's a pandemic. Forget about the limits. Just let kids go in their bedroom, close the door and do what they want. Not all families have become closer. Some have not. So they asked the teens, has your family become closer as a result of the pandemic or has your family not become closer? Teens who said their family has have become closer as a result of the pandemic, only 15% of them report being depressed. Fam, uh, teens who said their family has not become closer as a result of the pandemic, 28% said that they are depressed. Among those who said their family is closer, 15% depressed. Among those whose family said their, among those teens who said their family is not closer as a result of the pandemic, 28% are depressed. Sleep. In 2018, only 55% of teens reported getting seven or more hours of sleep a night. But during the quarantine, when this survey was administered back in June, mostly, 84% of teens reported getting seven or more hours of sleep a night. Overall, just 20% of teens, again, nationwide reported symptoms of depression compared to 28% in 2018. So based on these data, this evidence, we can say the formula for a happier teen is to eat supper as a family and get more sleep. It's that simple. So my wife and I uh, recently went to buy a new car. When the salesman found out that we have a teenage daughter. He's very excited, wanted to sell us the rear seat entertainment system and handed us this flyer. Well, let's look closely at this flyer. Uh, two kids are looking at a screen. Uh, mom is looking back at the kid. The kids are wearing headphones. Mom is looking back at her kids smiling as if to say, hey, this is great. We can drive to Philadelphia and never talk to my kids at all. What? 
how are we thinking? Time is precious. We're all busy. Time in the car is special. It's private time. When you're in the car, you should be listening to your daughter. And she should be listening to you, not to Bruno Mars or Cardi B. No earbuds, no headsets in the car. UCLA researchers followed middle income and affluent families, literally followed them around and just videoed them and then analyzed the video. And they found that a typical American middle-class or affluent family, mother, father, son, daughter, they arrive at home and within less than an hour always, and often within five minutes, they are each in a different room of the house looking at a different screen. That is now typical of the American family. That's not optimal, optimal but it's typical. You want your kid to spend less time in the bedroom and more time in the family room. No screens in the bedroom. No screens in the bedroom. No laptop in the bedroom. No TV in the bedroom. Nothing in the bedroom except the bed. The TV should be in a common room. You can't have a family life if the family is not together. And I want you to know I practice what I preach. That is a photograph of our family room. The television at the top right-hand corner, when we watch television, we watch it together. That's my father-in-law who just turned 85 with his back to the fire. That's my mother-in-law next to him. There's my wife and that's my daughter. They're not trying to entertain each other, but you spend time together. And we've got a big backyard. We grow much of our own vegetables, uh, carrots, uh, red peppers, tomatoes by the many, too many bushels, um, cucumbers, which are truly excellent, uh, board games, and our group selfie. <laughs> many American parents are confused. They think they have to choose between being the tiger mom pushing their kid to achieve or the Irish setter dad who just lets kids do whatever they want. But both are mistaken. The last chapter of my book, The Collapse of Parenting, is titled The Meaning of Life. You must impart to your child your understanding of the big picture. Why are we here? What's the purpose of human life? And it better be more than getting into Princeton or earning a lot of money because those answers will not satisfy. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's not a sermon. It is a robust empirical finding. I'm a physician. I can think of a surgeon I know who earns way north of 800,000 a year and he is miserable. He lives in a huge house with a wife and lots of kids and he's got debts and a mortgage and there's no way he can pay for it except being a surgeon, but he didn't like being a surgeon anymore. He wishes he could do something else. He's miserable. He told me he feels like he's a slave. He works 80 hours a week. He says, how is my life different from a slave? I have no say. I have to do this. Man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
we are embedded in this cult of fame and wealth that teaches you that if you have a lot of money, you will be happy. It's a lie. Money will not make you happy. We know this. You've got to teach your child the big picture. Why are we here? What's the point? And as I said, it better be better, something more than getting into Princeton because that answer will not satisfy. And if that's all you can come up with is you got to work hard so you can get into Stanford, then working hard to get a good mark just becomes a race to nowhere. To borrow the title of a documentary making exactly that point. So being the tiger mom doesn't work. But being the iris setter dad doesn't work either. Because researchers find that if you let kids do whatever they desire, what American teen girl most desire is social media. What American teen boys most desire is video games and pornography. You've got to instill a longing for something better than video games and social media. So I believe there are five takeaways from this talk. I've lifted that, listed them in your handout. Prioritize the family over same age peers. Cancel the play date, make a family date instead. Limit social media as per the guidelines I've shared. If you have a son, limit the video games as per the guidelines you'll find in Boys Adrift. Limit exposure to popular culture and find healthier alternatives. I rejoice that my daughter somehow has inherited my love of German culture, German language, and she can sing Beethoven's Ninth to you in German, and she great, takes great pleasure in doing so. Uh, ensure a good night's uninterrupted sleep. Sleep is foundational. Educate desire. Share what you most love with your child and see if you can't spark love or learn from them. So you find more on these topics in my books, Boys Adrift, Girls on the Edge, The Collapse of Parenting, Why Gender Matters, all of which are available as audiobooks. Translations are available in eight languages, some of which you'll find up front here. Uh, if you find this message useful and you know of another group that might be interested, I hope you'll spread the word and let me know. I also want to take two seconds to promote my other presentation, Boys Adrift, the five factors leading to unmotivated boys and underachieving young men. Why gender matters, hardwired differences in how girls and boys see, hear, smell, and how the brain develops and how that informs best practice for parenting. The great disappointment when dreams don't come true. And building a culture of respect in the school is really more just for schools. Okay, so the handout with the links to all the research and the notes that I would take is online. The link is mynameleonardsachs.com slash oakcrest.pdf. It is, excuse me, case sensitive and it is all lowercase and you must include the www and the .pdf. Uh, and uh, you're welcome to send me an email. My email is shown there and it's also in your handout. Uh, I will get back to you eventually. It might not be right away. If you haven't heard from me in a week, send another one and remind me. And I apologize, but sometimes I get behind. I do offer a monthly newsletter. 
uh, I write for First Things Magazine and for Public Discourse. And when I publish something there, I'll usually send out a uh, email blast. I send out the blast no more than once a month, if that. Uh, but if you're interested in knowing uh, what's up in my world, uh, click on that link on my homepage. Your comments, uh, questions, stories you'd like to share about anything that we've talked about this evening. Let me look online and see if we have, uh, for those of you who are online, if you click on the chat link at the bottom of your screen, uh, click on, oh, not, I'm sorry, this is a webinar. You have to click on Q&A and type your question. And, oop, here we go. Let's see what we got. Wonderful presentation. Thank you. Uh, any comments or questions? Yes. Well, and other parents have pointed out to me that the same thing goes on with adults and that they will mention how their friend, how she posted, oh, here we are on our wonderful vacation uh, in France. And um, uh, oh, we're, we're so disappointed that we didn't get to the best restaurant. So here we are at this restaurant and they're looking at their incredible meal uh, or, um, uh, this kind of, uh, oh, I didn't, I didn't put any work into this dinner. It just kind of fell together and there's this <laughs> enormous spread, uh, that parents are guilty of this as well, but the younger you are, the more vulnerable you are. You know, you and I are adults. We have at least one child. We've had, uh, we've, we've been out there and we have a sense of who we are. But teenagers don't have that. Uh, their world is, is much less established. And so they're much more vulnerable to uh, the, tox the toxicities of social media. Okay, so, all right. So a, uh, one of your colleagues has posted this question. My teenager doesn't have Instagram, but now she's in high school and everyone else has it. How do I continue to say no without her feeling like she's the only one left out? <laughs> well, first of all, your colleagues want to reassure her that she's not the only one left out. If she's at this school, she's not the only one left out. Don't let her... Uh, tell you that she is. Uh, find a school like this one where many girls are not on Instagram, but I want to respond very personally to this, to this, um, uh, to your colleague. Uh, so 
I'm a great believer in the in girls' education, and so is my wife. And my daughter Sarah attended the Agnes Irwin School for nine years, from pre-K through seventh grade. But she was the only one who wasn't on Instagram. And at Carline, all the other girls are on their phone. My daughter doesn't have a cell phone, doesn't have a smartphone, doesn't want one. And she's made very entertaining videos for me to show to middle school kids. Because when I speak to middle school kids, they'll say, do you have a, a daughter? I'll say, yes. And they'll say, does she have a smartphone? And I'll say, no, she doesn't want one. And they'll say, I don't believe you. So Sarah made a video, a very high energy video, uh, jumping up and down, explaining that she doesn't want a smartphone. Um, but it's tough being the only one. And we were also concerned uh, 10 years ago, uh, we thought this was the right school for Sarah and I, and, we, and I think it was at that time. But something strange has happened in the United States over the last 10 years. And uh, the Agnes Irwin School, like many uh, leading girls schools, now believes that gender is something that you create, that you invent. And when a school, a girl at that school announced that henceforth she wanted to be known as Noah and she's now a boy, the school commended her and held her up as a role model. Maybe I should say held him up as a role model. Uh, and Noah continues to attend this girl's school along with quite a few other individuals who now identify as trans boys. This is not just harmful to those individuals. This is harmful to every child who is exposed to this because you're now telling this kid that, hey, whether you're male or female is just some imaginary uh, posture and you can change. And we encourage you to consider doing that because that's the mark of being enlightened. This is false and it is harmful. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's a reality. And I encourage you, if you question that or you don't understand it, I hope you will read my book, Why Gender Matters. that shows that there are hardwired differences on the order of two standard deviations or more in how boys and girls see, hear, smell, and in how the brains develop. Deciding that you are a boy and not a girl doesn't change any of that. It just means you're gonna be a very unhappy person. And so we took her out of that school. And she now attends the Delaware County Christian School where nobody's on Instagram and the boys are boys and the girls are girls. Now, having said that, I also wanna stress that I understand the variation amongst girls. But one of the weird things about this whole trans activism is that it has actually reinforced gender stereotypes. My daughter wants to, her dream is to be a pilot for the United States Air Force. Her cousin is at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, and she wants to follow in his footsteps. And 10 years ago, that would be like, great. You know, 10 years ago, hey, girls can do anything. Sally Ride, go for it. But now, if a girl says she wants to fly fighter aircraft or be combat infantry, People are saying, what are her preferred pronouns? Is she trans? 
if girls don't want to play with Barbies, then they're being asked, you know, maybe you're trans. Are you transitioning? What are your preferred pronouns? It's weird. It's unhealthy. It's harmful. The varieties of human experience are very broad. There are girls who uh, like to do martial arts and engage in combat. There are boys who like to do ballet. That's fine. That doesn't mean that boy is a girl. It doesn't mean that girl is a boy. Anyhow, got to choose the right school. Great presentation and very informative. Okay, thank you. Uh, how do you recommend we prepare our children so they don't go from a household with rules to going to college where there are no rules? Specifically, what freedom should they be given prior to leaving the home so they can exercise good judgment? Okay. So that was uh, posed very courteously. Uh, let me give you the more common and less courteous way that question is sometimes posed. Parent says, okay, Dr. Sachs, suppose I do as you're recommending and I insist that my child behave virtuously and I don't let them post any provocative photos or spend, excuse me, two hours a night on Instagram in a couple of years, she's going off to college and I won't be there to supervise what she's doing. Won't she just rebound? All right. So in the book of Proverbs, there's a line that reads, if you raise up a child in the way they should go, when they are old, they will not depart from it. Is that true? No, it's not true. It's false. Book of Proverbs tends to be too optimistic. Ecclesiastes tends to be too pessimistic. That's why they're next to each other. You got to read them uh, together for the combination to make sense. If you raise up a child in the way they should go, when they are old, they will not depart from it. Well, we have longitudinal cohort studies. We can say that that's not a true statement, but we can tweak that line from the Book of Proverbs just a little bit. That makes that brings it into line with what the research actually shows. Here's the line from the book of Proverbs with the tweak. If you raise up a child in the way they should go, then when they move out and go to college, you have improved the odds. There are no guarantees, but if you inculcate good habits and you don't allow your daughter to share selfies in bikinis and lingerie, and you don't allow your son to spend three hours a night on video games and pornography. You've inculcated good habits. And there's a good chance that they're hanging on to those good habits when they go off to college. If on the other hand, you say, hey, you know, I think good parenting means letting kids decide, which is a quote from the New York Times. Uh, good parenting means letting kids decide. And that means you let kids decide what they're going to post on social media and how much time they're going to spend playing video games. And if that means that your daughter, like most American teen girls, is now posting photos of herself, possibly photoshopped in various provocative poses, or your son is spending hours a night on video games, what are the odds of when they go away to college, they're going to say, okay, well, now that I'm at college and nobody's watching at all, I'm going to turn over a new leaf and become more virtuous. The odds are not good. So in The Collapse of Parenting, I share a series of interviews I had with Marlo Phillips. Uh, 
Marla Phillips uh, grew up in what she considered a very, very strict home. Her parents did not allow her to have any social media at all. And it's relevant to this start story that she is a very attractive young woman and many boys wanted to date her. But if a boy wanted to date her, he first had to be interviewed by dad. And dad would have to approve. And then she was allowed to go on a date, but only with a chaperone. And Marlo was furious. She was like, are you out of your mind? This is child abuse. I'm going to call Child Protective Services. And mom handed her the phone. And Marlo said, I'm going to have to be in therapy for the rest of my life because of how you are abusing me. And then she went off to the University of Virginia, Charlottesville. And she told me at the beginning of her sophomore year, she had an epiphany. She suddenly realized, oh my goodness, I'm the only girl here who's not going to have to be in therapy for the rest of my life because of how my parents raised me. She said these, she told me there's girls who come up to her at college and say, hey, what do you think of these photos I posted on Instagram? Are they too skanky or maybe not skanky enough? And another girl comes up to her and says, do you think I'm giving oral sex to too many guys? And she wants to shake this girl and say, get a life. Don't you have any sense of who you are that you don't know what you want? Doing the right thing as a parent means that you will often do things that your child does not approve of. But in answer to your colleague, oh, so there's a whole chapter in my book, The Class of Parenting, titled Misconceptions, that begins with this parent's question. And again, many parents think because they saw something on Oprah or they read something in the New York Times that if, if you are strict, you're not loving. And if you're strict, you're not allowing kids to flourish. So Diana Baumrind is the great authority on parenting. She followed, she and her colleagues followed families for 30, 35, 40 years, going into the homes when the children were two, three, and four years of age seeing how did the parents parent and then coming back when the kids are 10 and 14 and 16, watching how they parent and then following these kids into adulthood. She is the one who coined the terms authoritative, authoritarian, and permissive to describe major parenting styles. I adapt her terms using the terms too hard, too soft, just right. She's the one who showed the too hard parenting. Rules that never bend, no love, corporal punishment, results in bad outcomes. At 30 years of age, those kids are more likely to have engaged in violent crime. They can't sustain loving relationships. But permissive parenting, letting kids decide, doesn't work either. At 30 years of age, those kids are much more likely to be addicted to drugs or alcohol because they never learn how to delay gratification, to exercise self-control. And they also have trouble sustaining long-term relationships. Best parenting is just right. Not too hard, not too soft, but just right. You have rules, the rules are enforced, but the rules can bend. You are loving, you are strict and loving. Anna Baumrin said shortly before her death, she made two important comments. She said, this was recently, she said, American parents today think you have to be either strict or loving. 
a generation ago, American parents knew that you need to be both strict and loving. They seem to have forgotten that. She said, American parents have drifted to becoming more permissive and they don't realize it because they've all done it. Parents are looking around and looking what other parents are doing. Don't do that because American parents have drifted in the direction of being too permissive. Uh, yes, in the back. Okay. So first of all, I want to restate one of the words you use the word exponentially. The relationship is not exponential after 40 minutes. It is linear. So I don't want to, I said the slope changes from being pretty flat to being pretty much a straight line. So it goes from being not a relationship to being a linear relationship at 40 minutes. What about parents like yourself who say no social media? I've talked to many such parents. Every one of them is glad they made the decision they made and the kids are doing fine. Um, why don't I encourage everyone to do that? Because it takes great courage on the part of a parent to say to your child, you are not gonna get Instagram. Um, you are not gonna be on social media at all. When in fact, the kid may say, but everyone else is, and maybe they are. Uh, but I commend you. And I've talked to other parents in your situation. All of them are happy. My daughter has no social media and she's not on social media, but she hasn't asked for it. Uh, so a, a mother told me how she said to her 14-year-old daughter, she said, I'm taking your phone away. It's not a punishment. You didn't do anything wrong. I'm just concerned that every free moment you're looking at your phone. And there's more to life. There's more things to do with your life than look at a phone. I'm taking your phone away. And this mom told me she was concerned that this girl's friends would ostracize her or reject her because she was no longer on social media. But she told me the girls, her daughter's friends are fine. They're like, well, you know, her, her mom's the weird one, you know, uh, but her friends are fine with it. It's no big deal. But this mom told me further that the parents of her girl's friends are furious and hostile and will come up to her unbidden and say, you are totally ruining your daughter's life. This is what American girls do now. And you are totally depriving her. And she is totally excluded. And this mother told me that she thinks that this is happening because those parents are uneasy and insecure with their decision. And so they're lashing out at her because she had the courage to do something that they do not have the courage to do. So that's her interpretation. Um, again, my recommendations are evidence-based. I cannot show you a study that shows that kids with no social media systematically do better than kids who use social media 20 or 30 minutes a day. 
Therefore, I do not think the evidence supports an absolute prohibition on social media. But the evidence does show an inflection point at 40 minutes a day. Now, if you want to say, hey, I'm going to make it 45 minutes, I'm not going to quarrel with that. But if you're going to say, I'm going to let my daughter decide, then I think that's immensely unwise if she lives in the United States. I think that's very unwise. And it is not what humans do. Parents' job is to set limits. And that's not an easy job, but it is your job. Yes, sir. Well, you mentioned about uh, an app with parental control. I've tried that with, with the newer phones. Um, you can set you have an iPhone? iPhone okay. 11, and you can, it, is that good? I, that Apple, Apple in, my, in my handout, I go into much more detail. And what I say in the handout is you have to ditch the iPhone. No parental monitoring software is stable on the iPhone. So incidentally, I wrote this article for the Wall Street Journal that I mentioned earlier. And I discovered in my research and talking to people that no parental monitoring software is stable on the iPhone. There's all kinds of ways to get around it on the iPhone. The easiest way is just to uninstall it. Uninstall the monitoring software, do whatever it is you want to do, and then reinstall it. Parent has no way of knowing that the app was uninstalled. And uh, Apple has made some cosmetic changes, but the reality is no parental monitoring software is stable on an iPhone. That's what I found with, with the, the app. It, they could go around it. But, but with the iPhone 11, um, you can shut the phone down and you can put a code in there. And I've sat down and talked to them. And then every app I go down how much time they need and I make a decision whether they can use that or not. And it shuts down. So you're saying that doesn't work either? I don't trust the iPhone because I, so I, I contacted a technology reporter for the Wall Street Journal and I said, hey, I'm writing this article and in my research, it seems that no parental monitoring software is stable on the iPhone, that there's any number of ways to get around it. Simplest way is just to uninstall it and reinstall it whenever you want to. Uh, is that true? And he said, well, let me check. I'll get back to you. And a few days later, he got back to me. He said he talked to his contacts at Apple. And yes, it is true. Steve Jobs directed his coders to make that a feature of the operating system. Steve Jobs did not want anyone possessing his phone to be subject to surveillance against their will. Steve Jobs did not intend for any child or teenager to use an iPhone. He would not let his own kids use it. He built the iPhone as a tool for adults. If you're going to install parental monitoring software, you have to ditch the iPhone and get an Android phone or a Google phone. Uh, and again, I go into that in, in your handout uh, because indeed these apps are not stable. Yeah, on the well, the, 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 uh, what the person talking to you at Apple doesn't realize is that the newer apps that kids are using, so, okay, Vault apps. Vault app, uh, the most popular one in the United States, looks like a calculator. It is a calculator. You can add, subtract, multiply, divide, find square roots, etc. But if you enter your five-digit passcode, the app vanishes and reveals the vault of obscene photos that you don't want your parents to see. And it will not show up. 
on any index of apps recently installed. Uh, so the Apple person may say, well, you can see what they've been using their phone for, not this app. The Vault app will be invisible and it is designed to be invisible. Uh, if you think that you can figure out the idea, the idea that you can look at someone's phone and type things on it and have any idea how the phone is being used is very 2007. It might've been true 13 years ago. It is not true today. The apps that kids are using today are designed to be invisible to parents. And again, many parents say, oh, well, my daughter would never use such an app. If she's in a group where everyone is using it, it's a great burden to put on your 14-year-old to expect her to say, well, I know everyone else is using this, but I'm a lady of virtue and I won't do it. Don't put your daughter in that situation. The parental monitoring apps that I'm talking about on an Android phone or a Samsung phone cannot be defeated. So anyhow, I asked the Wall Street Journal, I said, okay, look, we need to make a last minute change. Uh, we need to tell parents, don't buy an iPhone. Can we please put that in the article? And they said, no. They said, Dr. Sachs, your article is going on the op-ed page. It's opposite the masthead. As a matter of editorial policy, we do not make product recommendations on the editorial page. We make product recommendations in the technology section of the newspaper, which is a different section, but you're not in that section and you're not qualified to be in that section. You're in the op-ed page. So you won't find that recommendation in my article. And to be honest, I leave it out of the presentation as well. Otherwise we get into a largely unproductive argument about iOS 11 versus iOS 12, which is of no interest to parents who don't have an Apple phone. So I've learned, let's not even go there. I discussed that in the handout and I'd be happy to answer any emails that you have about the specifics of Bark versus Custodio versus Nadani versus MSPY and the various parental monitoring software out there. But I've learned from my feedback from parents, it's not productive for us to spend our time this evening going over the pros and cons of various apps or operating systems. Um, all right, so, uh, Beth has included her name, so I will mention her. Beth asks, how do you turn this around? If your daughter has already had mistakenly the things going on that you've described, how do you get around the feeling that she may inevitably experience when something's taken away from her? Good question. All right. And there are many variations on that question. Uh, like, um, should I take it away suddenly, the phone overnight, or should I do a gradual taper? And if so, what should the taper look like? All right, here's my answer to that question. If you have been, for example, allowing your daughter to keep her phone overnight, or not monitoring what she's doing, I encourage you to sit down with her and say, hey, we've been doing some things wrong and we're gonna make some changes. Starting tonight, I'm gonna take your phone from you. At nine o'clock, the very latest, I'm gonna put it in the charger, which from now on is gonna be in my bedroom, not yours. You can have it back tomorrow morning. Uh, starting tonight, you're no longer going into the bedroom with door closed. 
I want you to do your homework in the family room or in the kitchen. Um, and I will be installing monitoring software. We're getting rid of the iPhone. We're going to get you an Android phone instead. There may well be an explosion. And the older the child, the longer and louder the explosion. And uh, your child may not talk to you for a few days or a week. But if both parents stand their ground after six weeks, you will have a child with better self-control and in most cases, a happier child, certainly a more well-rested child. Parenting is tough. So for 18 years, I was an attending physician at Shady Grove Adventist Hospital in Rockville. And one night I got a call from the ER. They wanted me to come in. A girl I had known for many years had been a victim of sexual assault. 15 years old now. But they did not want me to admit her or to do a consultation. They wanted me to sit with mom. Mom was hysterical and had asked the ER attending to call me and ask if I would come in to be with her because she has known me for years and she didn't know any of these people and she was understandably very upset, as was her daughter. So I went, I drove into the hospital and I went into the consultation room, right off the ER, where mom was waiting for me. And I went into the room it was just her and me. And mom said, I knew I shouldn't have let her go. There's a frat party at the college. She's 15 years old. I knew I shouldn't have let her go. And of course, one part of you want, you want to shake her and say, well, then why'd you let her go? But I didn't do that, of course, because I already knew the answer. She wanted to be her daughter's best friend. And the best friend does not say no. The best friend can advise, but the best friend cannot say no. I was in Tampa, Florida, uh, visiting the School of the Holy Names, a girls Catholic school, and a mom attended a presentation something like this one, and afterward told me about her experience with her daughter. Her 14-year-old daughter came to her and said, hey, guess what? We're all going to Cancun for spring break. And mom looked at her phone and she was like, I can't get away that week, I'm busy. And the daughter said, I didn't say you're going to Cancun, we're going to Cancun, me and all the girls, none of the parents. And mom said, you're 14 years old. I don't think it's safe for a bunch of 14 year old girls to go to Cancun with no parents. And her daughter said, oh, it's totally fine, it'll be fine. We'll stay together, we'll have our phones, it'll be totally fine. And mom said, I'm sorry, you're not going. And she told me her daughter exploded, started screaming at her, saying, you're going to like totally ruin my whole life. I hate you. I hate you. And mom said, well, to be honest, sometimes I'm not so fond of you either. <laughs> but you're my daughter. 
I'm your mother. And that's a job. Like any job, it has a job description. And item one in my job description is I have to keep you safe. And I know more than you do about the behavior of drunk college men, and you're not going. She also added, you're 14, but you could easily pass for 18. And I don't think some drunk guy is going to ask for ID. If you're doing the right thing as a parent, it will happen that you do things that makes your kid upset and angry. It's part of your job. And if you don't get that, then you're actually putting your kid at risk. It's a harder job than it used to be because 20 years ago, 40 years ago, American culture supported the authority of the parent in a way that it now actively undermines the authority of the parent. Um, so you have to find the right school. You have to find other parents. Uh, but the point of my book is to try to encourage you. Encourage, 